0: Uh let's begin our study of 1 Corinthians by looking at Romans. Uh take a look at uh Romans uh chapter chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 13, he's talking about Abraham, and he's talking about what makes righteousness. And he says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be his heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no Okay, now take a look with me over at Galatians. Uh, Go over about four doors to Galatians. Uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Okay, so you get over to Galatians. And um, in Galatians, we'll we'll first take a look at chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. and to the Romans and to the Galatians. He's emphasizing that justification comes through faith. He'll even use Abraham as an example. But then we get over into 1 Corinthians 6 and it seems like all of a sudden Paul is emphasizing behavior and the way they ought to live their lives. This creates for some people a contradiction. They see a contradiction in this. Well, which is it, Paul? Are we justified by faith, or are we justified by works R- which is it? maybe Paul some say is uh, is is kind of double minded or schizophrenic that uh, when he 's writing to the corinthians he 's one kind of person, and when he 's writing to the Romans and galatians he 's another kind of person. Some critics, some cynics might even say that Paul is just very cynical that he uh, that he, he just writes whatever he needs to write to get things done the way he wants to get it done. Some have even gone so far as to suggest that Paul doesn't write all of these books. But then the funny thing about that is is that 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans are those that scholars definitely say are Paul. So which is it? Are we justified by faith? Or are we justified by works? And you can't say yes, like both. It's not. It's either one or the other. I mean, he's very clear in Galatians. It's faith. I want to remind you that when we started out 1 Corinthians, and you can look again at chapter 1, he talks about those in verse 2, the church that's in Corinth to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Ah. It's a different word. Very similar, but it's a different word, and it's important, that difference. Justification is the process of God making us right, putting us in a right standing, in a right relationship. And that comes through faith. Sanctification is the process of making us holy, of purifying us and maturing us to be more like the image of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that I think we need um, to—and by the way, all of these contradictions that I'm putting out there are contradictions that have been created rather unfortunately— (laughs) <laughs> because they, do, it, it's it's really not that difficult. But there is this idea that still persists in our culture, in Western culture, and in the Christian church. That you and I are going to make it through the pearly gates depending on our conduct. Okay. Um, that idea persists. I know it persists after more than twenty years. In Christian ministry because uh, I didn't sign up to be a Catholic and yet I've been asked to perform last rites for many a Protestant because I'll go to the deathbed and I'll be talking with them and they'll say I just hope I'm good enough to get into heaven well that's not the time when I want to say the truth which is well you're not (laughs) none of us are but we've been justified by faith in Christ Jesus really what's needed there is some assurance that God is is going to make us right but he loves us so much that he'll take us as we are he also loves us so much that he's not content to leave us there that he's going to make something new out of us so we've got to balance this idea of being justified and saved we often say saved by grace and by the way if you are saved by grace and we believe we're saved by grace scripture affirms that we are saved because of what God through Christ Jesus did for us we didn't earn it and and that's important that's important not just to uh, say uh, oh yeah we're all sinners okay we're all in the same boat we're all just happy in our sinful ugliness isn't that wonderful good you can't judge me and I can't judge you Uh, it's more important than that because when we say that we're saved by grace what we're saying is we're saying that you and I have no legitimate claim that we can put on God Here's what I mean by claim. Lord willing, I'm going to get a countertop installed in my bathroom this week, and I'll finally be have a countertop so I can finally have sinks so uh, that I don't have to keep shaving over the bathtub. If I've been looking a little uh, you know, fuzzy lately, that's, that's the reason why. But we're looking forward to this completion. Now, when, um, when that fellow installs that countertop, and he puts that thing in and he does his work, He has every reason in the world to expect that I will write him a check. And if I were to say, well, it's a gift of grace. You just decided to give me that countertop. Then, you know, he's going to be very disappointed. He has a claim on me because of his work. Now, if I pay him that check and that countertop is not everything that it's supposed to be or it isn't done right, I have a claim on him. And I can say, I want you to get this right. We don't get that privilege with God. God doesn't come to us in the form of a contract and say, okay, listen, here's the deal. You do these things, you follow these steps, you you accomplish these tasks, I'll save you. No. Grace is God acting when he has no reason to act other than his own love and his own mercy to say, I will save you all we are left to do is receive it and by the way in receiving it even in being baptized we are not enacting our part of the contract Uh, i've used the example before it's like open heart surgery you don't walk out of open heart surgery and say oh you should have seen the way i laid up on the table and got my heart cut you know my chest cut open and oh i was the perfect patient you're a recipient of grace um this is where God acts by his own initiative now somehow we have to be able to discuss that and and be completely sold out on that grace and I'll tell you I don't think we've sufficiently preached grace if it doesn't seem like we are dangerously close to saying well I guess God's grace means that we can live however we want you've got to come that close to it you really do or it's not grace because if there's any obligation in there that we can put on God or any sort of payback, it's, not, it's no longer grace. Okay, so if that's the case, then why should any of us live a particular way? Why should any of us choose to do better? Why should any of us follow his commandments? I mean, if, if it's grace that saves us, then we can't say that keeping the commandments is some sort of obligation so that we get a ticket into heaven. Paul makes a wonderful case for why in chapter six here and it's sanctification and this is the one i want us to recover sanctification means that you and i have been given this wonderful gift of grace and mercy and it's so significant that it has to change our lives it has to generate some kind of change when we realize how important that is we we can't help but be moved. Now, let's follow what Paul says here, and Paul, by the way, is appealing to the Corinthians. And keep in mind, he's not duplicitous or double-minded. If any of you have raised more than one child, you understand how children are different, and you 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 deal with them differently. That one child you may have to convince. Okay, listen, don't 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 be so cocky, don't be so arrogant. You need to learn a little bit of humility. Whereas if you've got this other child who's uh, say insecure you don't want to give them that same lesson because they don't need it but there's other lessons that you have to teach them paul has his church children the galatians were putting all of their hope on following the law and being legalistic they needed to learn about faith the corinthians have gone too far they're abusing grace they're treating it as if it doesn't mean anything and he's trying to show them no it does mean something Let's follow his argument here. We've already seen in 6 that one of the things that they're doing uh, is that they're, they're, they're taking one another to the secular courts where there's going to be favoritism, there's going to be corruption. He says you should be better than that because you're, you're going to be those. You're the select. You're the, you're the chosen of God. You're his children. You should be the ones showing the rest of the world how to behave and how to treat one another. You don't need these corrupt courts doing that for you um in verse 12 paul does what's called a um um a dialogue okay so he's he is going to shift back and forth between the things that they would say and then how he would respond to it he's he's setting up a straw man of sorts and giving making its argument but now this is more than a straw man He knows some of the things that they've been saying and some of the things that they've been thinking. He has a letter from them, and he has reports from Chloe's people. So he knows some of the things that they're thinking. So he's reading their own words back to them. Now, you get this from context. You and I can be thankful to the translators uh, in English because in some cases they've put quotation marks around Paul when he quotes the Corinthians he's quoting their own statements however i'm convinced and i agree with a commentator uh, richard uh, hayes that i don't think they've gotten all the quotations right it, it's guesswork i'll admit but let me let me make a case for this let's read uh starting in verse 12 he says quoting the corinthians all things are lawful for me but now paul says but not all things are helpful Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. The Corinthians say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, that's where some people close off the quotation mark. I would recommend that we move the quotation mark to the Corinthian slogan is, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is for food and god will destroy both one and the other okay just let's for now sake of argument let's move that quotation mark right there and then paul's response comes back well the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body and god raised the lord and will also raise us by his power do you not know that your bodies are members of christ Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Now they might say, the Corinthians would say, and we can put this in quotation marks, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But Paul responds, But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, if we put those quotation marks there, that those are the statements that Paul is quoting, then we have a consistent view. Where the Corinthians hold a view then, I mean, just read their statements all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. Food is meant for the stomach. Stomach is for food, material things. God will destroy both food and the stomach. So it doesn't matter. God's going to destroy it all. It's all material stuff. And then later on, they might say, every other person a sin commits is outside of his body. And what the Corinthians are proposing then is is an idea, which we would see examples of it around this time period, that the material universe is evil and corrupt and bad and God's going to destroy it all because the material world that you and I live in is uh, holding back the spiritual within us. And the goal of the spiritual is to be free of all that material stuff and to be set free and to be nothing but spirit, immaterial and immortal and everlasting. And that's a Greek form of thought, which really isn't anywhere in Scripture. That, in fact, from the creation story from Genesis, you see that God makes all things, and they are both spiritual and material at the same time. And he says, it's good. It's good. Now, sin corrupts what is good. Sin warps it. But sin isn't something within itself. If the Corinthians, like a lot of others, uh, both before and after this time, had this idea, then they would have the idea that, well, as long as I think the right things, and as long as my heart's in the right place, and as long as my spirit is in communion with God, then what I do in the flesh is really of no consequence. And again, they're getting this because they can separate out the spiritual, and the material. Now, just just like us today, in their day, they had two responses. One was to be entirely um, legalistic about it all. We might even say prudish. You know, I don't think they would call it that. But we might say prudish that they were just, you know, oh, no, 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 we have to be very careful about everything we do. And so you have the Pharisees, who are so strict about the material world and the way that they they do things, that they're even going into their spice rack and they're they're measuring out a tenth of all their valuable spices and giving that as an offering, making sure that they do everything just so. And Jesus says, that's fine that you do that, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Or you could, on the other hand, have those who believe, well, you know, we're taking care of the weightier matters of the law. Yes, but you're not practicing any kind of moral purity. And it looks like the problem here is This is another problem that he knows about is that they're engaging in some immoral practices. Prostitution in the ancient world and in Corinth would have been rather common. And um, the notion in Corinth is, again, sexual behavior is unequal. It's not about marriage and not being married. It's not about those covenants. It's about... It's rather about who gets to do what to who, and people are used in the, in ancient Corinth, and you know a lot of that still happens today. That people are used for the gratification of other people, and prostitution was an ins- was something that they did that even sometimes was connected to certain religious rites. Uh, archaeologists have uncovered uh, you know the little footsteps that lead to the the temples and the prostitution and all that you know there's all these indications and and again you know there's so much interest in this that would seem to us and it would seem to Paul when he was in uh, Athens and some of those cities it would seem pornographic and again these are pagans that 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 sort of thing is what they glorify in well if you're living in that culture and you're exposed to it you might compromise and say well you know I'm not really going to participate in that But I will participate in it, but it'll just be the flesh. And so you can see where they would compromise the situation and say, you know, it's outside my body. I mean, it's not me. It's just the external. It's all this this meat, flesh, trash that God's going to destroy anyway. So what does it matter? Paul says, it matters. But why? Okay, take a look at verse 14 the body's not meant for sexual immorality it's meant for the lord huh? and the lord is meant for the body now paul has just taken their idea that all this material human you know person that we live in is not just trash it's not just something to be burned up and to be destroyed that god cares about it in fact He came to us in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. And so that's why he'll continue to say, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. When Jesus Christ was risen, he was not an immaterial ghost. His body was raised again to life. It was renewed. It was a new kind of an existence. He was the firstborn of the dead, but he was material. And Paul knows these gospel accounts, and Paul encountered that risen Christ. And there's Thomas who says, let me put, let me put my hand, my, my, I want to see the scars. There's some continuity between that risen form and his previous form before death. There's a discontinuity, but there's also a continuity. There's something the same there. And by the way, when we get over to chapter 15, which is the core of 1 Corinthians, you're going to see he's going to talk about the resurrection, and he's going to say it's not just an important thing. It's the all-important thing. If that doesn't happen, then all of our faith and all of our practice and all of our life as Christians doesn't really amount to much. But again, if that's true, then it saturates everything that we do with meaning. So what I do with my body because God's going to raise it from the dead just like he did the body of Christ, well, then it matters. I need to be living in, in, in this body as if I'm also connected to the body of Christ. And this is where he says, we are members of Christ. And we read that word members the way that, that, we, that we read um, uh, participation in a group or a club. We're members of a, of a gym. We're members of a uh, civic club. We're members of a church. But he's talking about members the way you and I talk about our limbs, the parts of our body. Uh, I can live without my arm, but I don't want to <laughs> because it's a part of me and it's connected to me. And I can't act as if this is something different than me. He says, our connection with Christ and with one another is that intimate. So if we think that in the body we can go and participate in whatever we want, he says, you're taking Christ out there to that which is immoral. Do you want to connect Christ to that? Oh, no, uh -uh, no. Well, it's the same thing. He's getting them to think about this differently. He's getting them to see this differently. And one of the ways he wants them to see themselves and their body and their bodily existence is he wants them to quit thinking of this as a shell. And sometimes that thinking still is with us. Here's a little little quick explanation. The Greeks, and this Greek thought here, they would see us as eggs, okay? So you got a shell, and you got what's inside the egg. Now, you and I know that what's inside the egg is really important. Shell's not worth much at all. Except for that funny time when, you know, I remember in school poking holes in the egg and we blew all the stuff out of it and then we painted the eggshell. That is the dumbest thing. I don't know why we did that because it was like, well, that thing's just going to break. And, 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 you know, you can't eat the shell. The shell's no good. And, and, you know, and then people make Fabergé eggs out of it. And I'm like, well, what's the point? Just take all that golden jewelry and make some jewelry. Throw the eggshell shell away. Uh, I don't get it. Besides, what's in the egg is what's important. Well, that's the way we view the human body. Oh, you know, this old meat body doesn't matter. We're really spirit. We're, you know, what's inside, the inner man, the inner person, that's what matters. This old shells just going to fall away and all that kind of stuff, and then we act like it's just like we're discarding an old raggedy coat. The Hebrew, and I would say the biblical viewpoint is, is that we're not eggs, we're cake. karen made the most wonderful cake this week Mm. it was so good you know and what do you got to have to make cake you got to have flour and you got to have water and you got to have eggs and sugar and all this you know and you mix it all up and you make a batter then you stick it in the oven and then you bake it and out comes the cake now you have that wonderful cake take the sugar out of it well you can't it's just in there (sighs) Take the eggs out of it. They don't, they don't come apart like that. You and I are not machines. We can't just come apart. We're like a mixture. So we are both spirit and body. This is why the great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart. This old meat shell doesn't matter. No, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your body, with all your soul, with all your strength stands in for body with your whole being. Paul is using that perspective to say to them, hey, it matters what we do in the body because the body and spirit are connected. He said um, the two will become one flesh. In other words, sexual union is not just a physical thing. It's also a spiritual thing. It matters. He who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him so this is why we flee from sexual immorality paul's reason for rising above the morality of the world is that even if we say well by grace all things are lawful well that's fine but are all things beneficial is everything good paul's arguing for sanctification which is a kind of a spiritual maturity you know, as we grow and as we mature, we, we, we come to this realization that we can't avoid doing things or we shouldn't stop doing things just because someone told us not to. And sometimes I think people want preaching to do that. Hey, preacher, you need to get up and remind everybody, don't, don't smoke, don't drink, don't cuss, don't, you know, okay, fine, you know, and if, and if Listen, if it were that easy, then none of us would ever have a problem because preachers have been doing this for a long time. And if people just had to hear that, hey, y'all need to stop. Well, okay, we'll stop. We didn't know that. Thank you for telling us not to. There comes a point at which we don't have our parents or other adults or others around to tell us not to do something. And yet we realize in a moment of maturity, well, those things aren't good for me. Hmm. And even though they may not be technically unlawful or illegal or even immoral, it might be that it's not good. It's not beneficial. That's going to become important later on in chapter 12 when Paul gets them to realize that, yeah, you know, if you speak in tongues, great guns. Go for it. Speak in tongues. He will not tell them not to speak in tongues. And I know, you know, I mean, Hey, I'd love for there to be a prohibition on some of that, you know, because it's kind of it make things easier. You know, hey, you're not supposed to do that. Why it says so in First Corinthians twelve? Quit it. Oh, okay. Um, I always love praying with tongue speakers because I have to. I've learned how to do this now. Um, you know, I started out and I, I would pray my standard prayer, but let me tell you, if you're not used to tongue speaking, you get interrupted because you start out, dear Lord, we ask you now. Oh yes, Jesus. Oh yes, you. De- Wait a second, who's leading this prayer? And then, uh, so what you have to do is you just, it's kind of like doing a wedding and you do the repeat after me, you kind of, you just go, dear Lord, yes, Jesus, oh, Lord, yes, you let him get it out. I ask you now, oh, yes, Lord, I ask you, you just kind of go a sentence at a time. It works, it works beautifully. And uh, so you just adjust, you know. But Paul says, you go right ahead and you tongue speak. But he says, but let me ask you this, when's the best time to do it? He said, when's the best time for it? Does it do more good for you? And if it does, that's great. But is it helping others? He's asking them to come up to a level of maturity so that then when they're in worship, they start thinking not just about what they get out of it, but they're thinking, how can we benefit others? And that's nothing that he can put on them as if it's a rule or a law. He has to encourage them and appeal to them To be mature enough to realize, hey, we're connected to one another. We ought to be looking out for one another, and that's what's beneficial. And so morality is good for us, and it's good for the body of Christ. But even when it doesn't pass that test, because we might say, well, listen, I'll be the judge of what's good for me. Well, that's fine, but the last line here in in chapter 6, are you glorifying God in your body? Hmm. Now there's the question right there. And he seems to think that what happens in this body, in this shell, it really does matter, and that we do glorify God. And, and in that way, we're practicing sanctification or holiness. Now there will be some more practical applications for that in two weeks when we get into chapter 7, because he's going to apply this to the very real situation of divorce and marriage uh, if I can y- y'all are such a great class let me offer this as a little bit of homework let me encourage you to read uh, Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10 and then we'll get back together in, what is that, That's two weeks uh, June 25th in Mark Chapter 10, and in Matthew 19, Jesus is asked a question about when it is lawful, there's the legal question, for a demand, for a man to, uh, well, kind of the way they were saying it was for a man to, you know, give his wife a divorce papers, you know, when's it legal, when's it lawful, and it's a political hot potato question that they're asking Jesus um, and really what's going on there has very little to do with divorce and remarriage and more to do with how you read Scripture. <laughs> because Jesus is drawing us back to God's intent in creation and they're wrangling over legalism around, centering around Deuteronomy 24. But it's still a very real issue. Paul, and I would say that 1 Corinthians 7 is just as helpful. Paul is informed of the teaching of Jesus on this because he's going to use it. And the way he uses it in 1 Corinthians 7 is instructive. And the situation that he argues for. But again, Paul always gets his answer from the gospel. The reason why we do things is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He'll always go back to that. He just did in these chapters. He's going to do that again in chapter 7. So we'll wrap it up there. Uh, We're going to sing this um, uh, song. If you need to partake of communion, that's been prepared in room 100. And then after that, Jerry Canfield will dismiss us in prayer. So let's stand and let's sing together.